Welcome to the Alkaline Unplugged podcast. I'm Erin Parazuski, a functional fitness expert and holistic health coach. I am the founder and CEO of Alkaline, a health and wellness company that operates boutique fitness franchises across the U.S. I live in Menlo Park, California with my husband and two young daughters. I am joined by my podcast partner, Kathy Purnell, a master instructor at Alkaline and a former special education teacher. She has three grown daughters and lives in Los Altos with her husband, Jeff. Together, we bring you Alkaline Unplugged, a collection of conversations on a whole host of topics, from experts in the health and wellness field to the real, raw, and human stories of people like you and me. We look forward to bringing you content that will nourish your mind, body, and soul. We thank you for tuning in and look forward to your comments and feedback. If you like what you hear, we'd appreciate a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. As a disclaimer, neither Kathy nor I are licensed medical professionals. The materials and content in this podcast are intended to be general information and are not to be considered a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Welcome. Hi, Erin. Hi, Kathy. Hey, today we're joined for our second quarantine podcast with Dr. Tamara Rosier. Tamara is the founder of the ADHD Center of West Michigan and works with individuals with ADHD and their families to build understanding around ADHD, learn effective strategies, and develop new skills to live with it effectively. And I think this is a really timely podcast. So welcome, Tamara. Thanks. It's great to be here. I think, you know, given that parents all over the universe are thrust into this position of being a homeschool teacher with, you know, little to no background in education. Some of the insights that you might have would be helpful. You know, we're probably all learning things about not only our own children that we're homeschooling, but our spouses, perhaps even. And another thing that I find interesting about what you do is your focus on conflict management, which again, in the time of COVID, conflict Conflict happens. Yeah. So welcome. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about what you do in terms of, um, I'm assuming you're working from home, obviously, but tell us a little bit about what your work background is and tell us about you. Yeah. So normally I say to my clients, remember a long, long time ago when we saw each other in person? Hmm. Well, a long, long time ago when I used to see people in person, I'm an ADHD coach which means even though we have therapists at the ADHD center who specialize in anxiety and depression related to ADHD, I'm an ADHD coach. And what I do is uh, I work with people to develop strategies and to identify their ADHD tendencies and maybe not judge those tendencies, but do something with those tendencies. And I work with a lot of people who feel really crappy about their life. Um, And what people don't know about ADHD is every single one of us has um, a rejection sensitivity issue. And we know we're, we know that we're less than, and we feel that we're less than, and that we can't compete with neurotypicals. And that affects us in different ways. And so uh, one of the biggest things I wish people knew about ADHD is that Um, emotional regulation, the ability to actually monitor your emotions is much, much harder when you have ADHD. Right. So for parents who are dealing, let's, we can start with kids. So, but who, for parents who are 
working with their student who has ADHD, how do you coach? What would be your top tips and tricks for how parents can? Yeah. So I've been doing a lot of family calls lately where the whole family squishes together on the bed and we have to get the camera just aligned on Zoom just right so I can see everyone's face. But then we talk about the basics of how are we going to live together? Because you're going to be surprised. Kids don't like necessarily to do homework. And ADHD (laughs) kids fight it even more. And the problem here is the smarter the kid, the worse it is. There's nothing worse than a smart ADHD kid because they're smart enough to play the games around everything. And that's something good to point out too. Um, Being diagnosed with ADHD does not mean that your IQ is lower than average. Um, So I I agree with what you're saying that, you know, it can, for those kids that are smart, it makes it a thousand times harder. Yes. So in fact, one of my areas of specialty that I just really enjoy are high IQ, working with high IQ kids who have ADHD. And so there's a family I'm thinking about right now, uh, as who I'll use as an example. Um, Dad is a doctor. Mom is very smart in her own right. Mom has ADHD. Oldest son has ADHD. Second son has ADHD. And dad, who is neurotypical, is looking at his two boys, one, wondering, how am I I ever going to make a man out of these things? Two, why can't they just sit there and do their work? And a lot of times, ADHD people need a little bit of different strategies. Now, the dad in this situation say to the mom, stop, stop holding their hands. They should be able to do this by themselves. And so the first strategy I always tell parents are, just because you have a very smart kid doesn't mean they can function on their own. Um, so the number one strategy I add um, or I ask parents to consider is body doubling. And this works for adults and children. And what body body doubling is in our house, we call it study hall, is when you sit it, you sit next to someone as they're performing the function they need to. We know it has an effect on their heart rate, brain waves. I mean, it, it, it calms the other person down and it's like a subtle, a subtle reminder of what the person should be doing. It's like an anchoring almost. Yes. It's an anchoring. It's a psychological anchoring through proximity management. So you're not actually doing their work. You're just there. It's just like parallel play, (laughs) parallel work. You know what? That's, I love that you brought that up. It's parallel play. And um, a lot of times neurotypical parents, people without ADHD will go, well, he shouldn't need that. And so something I'm really begging parents to understand is, but what if he does? Is that wrong? And then parents will say, yeah, but in the real world, well, your kid's not living in the real world yet, is he? So how about we accommodate? So body doubling is the easiest way to do it. Now, you um, mentioned something that I thought was interesting. I just want to tap on that for a second. Is like for the, in this particular family, you mentioned that both the wife and the two kids had ADHD. What is the genetic connection? Uh, it's interesting. There is a strong genetic component. Usually what happens in my practice is uh, really loving parents bring their child and say, I think this child has ADHD. 
And then gently I have to ask parents, well, where do we think it came from? <laughs> and parents are like, wait, what? And really, as after I ask some questions, uh, we can start to figure out which side it came on, not to blame, but there's always one parent that can understand the struggle better than the other. And so I try to uh, work with families to make it an ADHD-friendly home, because where there's one ADHD, unless the kid was adopted, <laughs> there's more. And right. there's always more than one. Um, so you have about a 50-50 chance uh, when you have one parent with ADHD. I have a question about that. So how many of those parents that you are seeing are diagnosed when you first meet with them? It sounds like maybe they're surprised. Like, oh, not me. And you're, right. and you're sort of uncovering this as you're also trying to work with the child. So is it... I mean, just, I just know since the time I was growing up, things are, we just know so much more and so many le fewer things get missed, you know, in the school system and with all the right. resources we have. So would you say for the parents' generation, most of those things are still undiagnosed? Yes. And remember, I started off by saying ADHD people have rejection, sensitivity, and heightened emotions. Well, here's the sad thing. In order to adapt, to try to look normal in the world, a lot of those people have developed coping mechanisms of hiding. And so a lot of, especially men I work with in their 40s and 50s, have like covered this with deep shame. And so they know they're inadequate. I'm using air quotes. You can't see me use air quotes, but I'm using air quotes. They know they're inadequate. They don't believe they're good enough. And yet they're striving to look normal in a world. So is it uh, when they are diagnosed, is that, does that typically relieve some of the stress of, because they maybe don't know, they know, they know something is hard. Like for example, uh, I just re-listened to a podcast we did, it must have been, I don't know, last fall with Leanne uh, Willie. Do you know her from town? She's, um, she's from Ada as well. And she oh, okay. was diagnosed with autism in her late thirties. And her response to that was, oh, I was so relieved because now I had a name for that. And then I could, you know, look into that and learn how to cope with that. It also happens to be what she studied as a profession. So she was sort of always uh, searching to figure out her herself and how to manage in the world. But is it, do they find like a sense of relief or is that diagnosis feel more like a, you know, the scarlet letter, like some sort of label that they're just want to bury a little bit deeper. Another family that I was working with again, neuro. Now this one was a neurotypical mom. Dad clearly had ADHD. Dad was not willing to admit it. And he was perpetually pissed at his children <laughs> because they were screw ups right? ADHD screw-ups in his mind. And it was such a slow process of helping him accept their diagnosis first, and then slowly helping him accept his diagnosis. And he didn't have the luxury of a diagnosis when he was a kid. So he learned some really dysfunctional coping skills, um, like perfectionism. Believe it or not, that's one of our coping skills. Um, anger, you see anger as a coping skill in, um, in this case, in a lot of men, it, there's a certain sadness that comes with it. 
um, there can be a relief that people are like, whoa, this makes so much sense to me. But then a lot of times people are like, what if I had known sooner? I would have gone to college. I, I could have been a doctor. I could have done this. And so uh, there's a whole well that I kind of, and it's why I'm very respectful. I don't, I don't just point out, hey, by the way, you're the likely carrier of ADHD. You might want to think about that. Um, I enter it very lightly because, Aaron, I love what you said. It feels like a scarlet letter. And I'll be really honest. I have a PhD and I have ADHD. And I still feel not insecure, but looked down upon because my brain doesn't work like a neurotypical brain might. Well, it's learn- It's accepting those learning differences, right? That um, we're all unique individuals and our brains are different from one another. And yeah, that's really challenging. But, some, but somehow those of us with ADHD, uh, we don't have them. Um, I'm just going to nerd out, I promise, for one quick second. The prefrontal cortex, if you touch your the top of your forehead, that's where the prefrontal cortex is. And that's where um, executive functions happen. So that's where you plan out your time. And, and Kathy, I know that you know this as a former special ed teacher. Um, that's, that's a really modern amenity for life. That's how I know where I parked my car after a shopping trip. Um, it's how I know to think ahead. Well, those of us with ADHD, it doesn't work well. And it's fairly obvious if you follow us around that we lack executive, basic executive function skills. For example, you guys are on the West Coast. I'm in Eastern time. You would think I was dissecting an atom to try to figure out what time I should be on this call. I mean, it was hard math for me. Remember, I have PhD and I can do statistics. (laughs) Um, It's because time zones are just lower level executive functions. So can you tell us more, like just taking a step back, if we, you know, suspect that we might be living with someone or have a child that has ADHD that has not yet been, you know, flagged by someone at school or someone we haven't taken, I mean, how do we know? Like, what are some, you know, key things? Yeah. How do we know when it's time to maybe get them? Yeah. So the number one thing that tips everyone off Higher IQ kids are trickier to catch. Um, higher, IQ, high, higher IQ kids with achievement motivation are nearly impossible to catch, okay, um, and diagnose. Um, the number one thing I look for is how they motivate themselves. Do they motivate themselves with the prefrontal cortex, that part of your brain that just kind of knows what to do, when to do it, and how to do it? Or do they motivate themselves emotionally? Like, darn it, this time I'm going to get it. And they kind of whip themselves up into this little frenzy to do it. So I had a client a couple weeks ago. uh, He was getting himself all worked up to clean out his garage. He's like, you know, darn it, it is about time I did this. I've been lazy, no good. And you could hear him starting to whip up the emotional storm just to do something normal. And that's, to me, the the biggest tell. And if you listen to people, you'll hear them push an emotional reason for doing it instead of just a rational reason. And do you think underneath that, like for that example, with the person who um, knows they want to clean out the garage and they just cannot, you know, they're beating themselves up for not having done it and they can't take that first step. 
do you think how much of that is they look at that task and they it, their ability to break it down step by step first i open the door then i walk into the garage then i open the garage door and then i you know what i'm saying like the step by step Kathy, that's that's the other telltale sign that I look for um, is I look for sequencing problems. In other words, <laughs> I spend half my job convincing grown people to go to bed on time. ADHD people don't know how to sleep. That's a side issue. Um, and how to break down tasks. So here's how a conversation would go with a, the garage cleaning guy. Um, so what do you think you're going to do first? And he'll say something. And I'll repeat exactly what he said and say, so your first step is this. And I'll say, no, that's not my first step. My first step is this. <laughs> and he'll, he'll contradict himself. And I, I, again, repeat. So your first step is this. Go, no, that's not my first step. Before that, I have to do this. And what's interesting is people with ADHD tend to start at step three or four, but we know that's not right. And we can't quite find the first step. And so that's another, uh, Aaron, that's another telltale sign for me is I don't know even know where to start. This is all overwhelming for me. And then so we does do- this, does this sometimes lead to counting yourself out before you even try? Is that a yes result? Like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to quit because I'm not sure really, you know, it's too hard or I don't know where to start or some other perhaps excuse. What is the uh, typical age where people nowadays are getting diagnosed? Do they have to be at like a certain level, you know, talking about the prefrontal cortex, like a certain level of, you know, brain development? When, when do these things kind of start to surface? Yes. So we start, a lot of people will say, you know what, let's wait till the child's six or seven before we do this. But if there's a family history, uh, what I do is I work with parents going, hey, look, one of you has it. The odds of this child having it is about 50-50. And right now he's climbing in the dryer and thinking he's hilarious. So maybe let's keep him on our suspect list for diagnosis. So then I start working with a parent on let's think strategically how to parent this child with ADHD because there's different techniques to use. So that was more than you asked for, Aaron. But um, so around six usually. <laughs> with young okay. kids. Something as simple as, not simple, but something as specific as, you know, for like a five-year-old, okay, I need you to get your shoes, put them on, grab your jacket and meet me in the car. If a five-year-old misses multiple of those steps, I would be calling Tamara. Yep. yep. What? How do you know if it's just, not that I'm speaking from personal experience, but, you know, if you have to ask them to you know, set the table six or seven times, or they claim that they can't hear you. I've actually had one of my kids hearing tested a few times because I thought she was hard of hearing. So we joke about the difference between hearing and listening. But then sometimes I wonder if she can, if it is really that she doesn't, she's not processing it. You know, I don't know if what's an excuse and what's a, might might be something yeah. going on, you know? I, I think that's a great, thing to be questioning in ADHD diagnosis, especially with a family history. A lot of kids, when you say, let's say you ask me to do something, but I'm my head somewhere else, my body will respond, uh-huh, and I, I didn't listen. 
Now, neurotypicals can do it too. Neurotypicals do everything I'm saying, you know, all these examples. It's just ADHD, take it to a different level. We make an art form of it. So I'm doing something else and my head is just not, my head and body are separated. And I see that quite a bit. Um, So something, you know, Aaron, you could tell your friend if you have to ask, you know, a child to do things, you could, you know, say to the child, I need you to sit to the, the table. What's your first step? And it's just enough to jog the child out of where they were. They're like, whoa, I, I have to create an answer here. That's or a even great suggestion. Like, look at me. Okay, I'm going to ask you to do something. <laughs> you know, breaking it down, not in a demeaning way at all, but just so that you're, I think, 100% certain that they are listening and hearing what you're saying. It's not just wah, 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 wah. Right. And I'm just going to be honest. That's what ADHD people hear a lot. Yeah. It's the Peanuts um, character teacher. Well, I often ask people in my house if my voice sounds like white noise, because that's kind of the response I get, (laughs) which is nothing. (laughs) Okay. Um, Do you mind if I just talk about that a quick second? Because No, not at all. Please do. What you're accidentally being trained to do is to yell. Because... Remember, um, if the prefrontal cortex, the place that tells us what, how, and when to do stuff isn't working really well, what goes in over time is our fight or flight or flee instinct. And so what parents find out is yelling works, except the problem is we don't want to be screaming at our kids. You know, it doesn't feel good for anyone. And so I always caution parents, be careful your child is accidentally training you to yell at them. So what do you do about that? Because I don't want to be a yeller. And my kids do say I yell, but sometimes I yell on purpose. It's not coming from anger. It's, I mean, sometimes I do react, but sometimes I intentionally raise my voice because that's the only way one of them hears me. Exactly. And so, um, and then, and then I love what happens. So this plays out a lot, especially with the teens I work with. The mom will say, set the table. Set the table, set the table, set the table. Freaking set the table. And the this daughter or son will go, gosh, you don't have to yell at me. What's wrong with you? <laughs> and so I get a yeah. text from student saying, You need to talk to my mom. She's always yelling at me. You know what and, I'm is oh, go ahead. Oh, well, my text back to back is sounds like you accidentally trained your mom to yell at you. Let's fix it. <laughs> we need to retrain your mom. I do, uh, we do a lot of kind of retraining. You know, I put it, the onus on the child. You trained your mom to yell at you. You're not going to listen until she yells. And so uh, we work, I work with strategies for the child to listen better, but I also work with strategies for the parent. How much during this quarantine time too, um, how are you seeing the effects on your clients in terms of the structure is completely different than it was when they were, you know, either they were setting the alarm or their parents were waking them up and they were, you know, getting ready for school, going to school. They have the consistency of their teachers and their, their daily schedule. How, how have you seen that impacted during this time? Well, I have two kinds of students and I do, you know, we're talking about students. I do coach people up through, you know, adult but I see two kinds of students right now. The kind of student that is like living his best life. <laughs> He's like, I am freaking loving life. The introverted HGH. 
Pardon? The introverted ADHD. Uh, or extroverted. It's like I, one, one student said, look, I don't fight with my family anymore. I have nothing to be anxious over. I do my homework in two hours a day. Everyone's happy. This is the life I should be leading. And there's no FOMO these days. No, there's, there's no. no. <laughs> right. True. Right. And the, these, these students are living their best life. Um, because going to school is exhausting when you have ADHD. Going to school and pretending you're normal for eight hours is just exhausting. And the demands, the cognitive demands we place on that prefrontal cortex, that forehead area, it's exhausting. Most teachers teach to that area, and most of us don't use that area well. So that's one group, the group that's just living their best life. And the other group is kind of wandering around like they're in a daze going, well, what do I normally do? And they're kind of crankier. They're a little bit out of sorts. And with that group, um, I worked within the first couple of weeks of lockdown um, to get them on a schedule. Uh, those, uh, Kathy, you mentioned the psychological anchor. Schedule for these kids are psychological anchors. Yeah. Knowing what's going to happen, when is it going to happen? And so you know, I, I coach parents on a system for building a schedule with their child, not for their child, because we want to use this as a coaching time. How do we build this and strengthen this um, idea? Yeah, of because the job as a parent of a, a student or a child with ADHD is to give them the tools in their toolbox so that they can be successful when they leave the nest, right? Exactly. That's exactly it. Yeah. Maybe now is a good time to kind of move into how one of the things that you do in your practice is deal with conflict, helping people understand how to deal with conflict. Right. How do we deal with conflict when we're stuck with our family members who are driving us crazy? Right. First of all, conflict happens. And way back in another lifetime, um, I was an English teacher and I used to teach the book, A Tale of Two Cities. And it's still my favorite opening line. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. And that's exactly what I'm seeing happening in families right now. Families are rediscovering how to live together and how to do life. And there's these precious, sweet moments that families are having. Sometimes we have to point those precious, sweet moments out. I'm constantly, I have a 23-year-old daughter living with us right now. She's home from New York City where she would love to be living her best life you know, working and seeing her people. And I'm constantly trying to reframe for her how, you know, the quarantine at Queensbury, which is the name of my street, quarantine at Queensbury doesn't suck all that bad. Like who brings you a latte every morning? Me. Right. Right. It's hard. It is hard. Um, I, yeah, I like, I have an 18, my 18 year old is still at home and she's a senior this year. So, you know, she's going through some, a lot of conflicting emotions. My husband and I are always like, and look, you get to live with us today. (laughs) And with the three of us, uh, we haven't actually had a lot of conflict, but that's because my husband and I are both trained in the area of managing conflict. And so something we do pretty quickly is sense when the temperature is getting higher and we monitor ourselves. So to be honest, last week there was a day I hated everyone. And when I'm in the mood where I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, whoops, it's my problem, right? So I put myself on high alert. 
And which means I said to my family, you know what? I'm not as stable as I'd like to be right now. And I'm kind of cranky. And I took responsibility for it and then moved on. And I did say something kind of cranky to my husband, who is normally a delightful guy, but he was really irritating that day. And so I normally, you know, would just joke it off. Instead, I said something cranky. And I gave myself, you know, about a couple minutes. And I'm like, you know what? That's not who I want to be. I'm really sorry about that. So that's one way we've been managing conflict in our home. Some families have never had to practice conflict management. Their schedules have been too busy. They've, they haven't had to do life as intensely as they're doing life now. And so some people are just now learning the skills of, oh, crap, I really hate the people I live with right now. And now let's add the emotional regulation or emotional dysregulation that ADHD people have. Um, one mother, she sent me an SOS. I need to get on your schedule. I just lost my stuffings everywhere. I just, I lost it on my kids. And it's not that she's unhealthy. She's never had to live like this before. So she's never had to have the conflict skills before. So first of all, everyone in the house has to take responsibility for their own emotional footprints. And um, what I suggest with families is we call a family meeting and say, all right, we are taking responsibility for our own emotional footprint, which means we're responsible for what our feet do. So if I am cranky and am stomping around, I need to own that as my issue. I can't say, well, dad, dad's making me do that. That's not an okay thing to do. Yeah, I like that whole what what you referred to as you said something about taking your temperature, right? Yeah. You can yeah. that's something for me. I know I can sense when my temperature is rising and you know, just try to own that and name it and yeah. try not to lash out. It's it's challenging, no doubt, living in close quarters, but I think having the awareness that the only thing well, we can control truly is our response to things. Yeah, but this is the great time that families, this is the gift, this is the best of times where families can teach, hey, let's take everyone's temperature. How is everyone doing here? Right. And, um, you know, a lot of families I work with are just all smart Alex. And so when the mom says, hey, let's take everyone's temperature here, you know, how is everyone doing? The kids come up with really smart Alec answers. That's great because now they're actually playing together. And so, you know, we don't have to be afraid of their sarcastic, clever little remarks. They're actually playing, but that's building self-awareness. I was listening to a podcast by Dr. Laura Berman, who is a relationship and sex therapist. Anyway, she was talking about the challenges for, like you mentioned, you have a senior in high school and just the the disappointment that they're not finishing their high school, what, what should be such a big moment in their lives. It's definitely not going the way it's not ending the way or winding down the way they would hope, hope it would. And her point was allowing, you know, you're going to get some pushback from those kids. Those kids are frustrated. They're angry. And many parents will try and come in and say, Oh no, no, you shouldn't feel that way. You know, at least you have this to look forward to or that. And her point was let them feel their feelings. Let them talk about those feelings. Your job is not to fix those feelings. Your job is just to hold space for those feelings. And I thought that was wise. I, I love that because, um, you know, when I do check in with my 18-year-old, I'm like, how are you feeling? And she's a stoic little girl. 
she's 18, but she's my baby. So, you know, in my head, she's still five, but she's stoic and she'll go, I'm fine. And I say to her, if you weren't fine, what would you be feeling? And it always tricks her and she answers. (laughs) That's brilliant. Well, I'm a little sad. I'm like, yeah, I'm sorry, kiddo. And I just kind of, I don't try to fix it. I try to walk with her at that moment and go, it is sad, but she doesn't want to dwell on it. She wants to kind of get on with life and she does, but it's okay that, yeah. And it's okay that, that she feels it. Um, And we want to try to help our kids name it. I'm a big believer in helping kids name it. Absolutely. So, so to your conflict question, um, I, I teach families to do a family debrief where after a blow up, you mean? Yes. After the blow up, we ask three questions. So let's say daughter had a complete meltdown. We wait till everyone's calmed down and ready to talk. And then we ask them three questions. First, walk me through what happened. And at this point, I really tell parents, don't argue, just be a reporter. I'm not the kind of reporter that argues these days. I'm talking about the reporter that just <laughs> quietly listens and goes, and then what? And then what? Um, because the importance here is you're helping your ADHD child recount what actually happened and not what they think happened. And that's, that's a very important step. The next question is, what should have happened? Like, where did this go wrong? It's the where did this go wrong question or what was the ideal here? And so what we're helping the child do there is compare reality to the ideal. And then the last question is, huh? So you had a meltdown and you kicked the wall and now the wall's broken and your little brother's pretty ticked because you used one of his toys to do damage too. How are we going to fix this? Um, this is where you're going to see kids being just, they, they don't know how to fix it. And your opportunity here is let's teach them how to be problem solvers. My behavior caused a problem. How do I fix it? I think that technique could be used for ADHD kids and everyone. Yes. Yes. It's, and good, adults. it's good adulting too. Yes. Yeah, it's good adulting. Uh, I teach parents to do that debrief with their kids. So the mom who, you know, lost her stuffings to her kids, I said, how, do your debrief and say, here's what happened. Mom lost her patience and there's no really good reason why. And I kind of flipped my lid. And here's what should have happened. <laughs> and the mom says, here, I should have been able to listen without yelling at, back at you. And my behavior caused a problem. And here's how I want to fix it with you. Is that okay with you? I think this is a lot of use for couples. Yes. If I know my, sometimes my patients are not exactly what I'd like them to be. And I've, you know, popped off with things that I don't necessarily need to say and in the aftermath, I can recognize, oh, you know, I probably could have said that better. Do I always follow up with a conversation with him about that? No. And I could do a much better job of that. I, it's amazing how I can coach people all day and still end my day and be a rotten spouse or parent. I'm amazed at my capacity some days to not practice what I preach. We're imperfect people living in a very imperfect world. So, right. And so The best I, you know, sometimes I think I use up all my good behavior on strangers. Oh, I think, I think we treat the people closest to us the worst. Yes. And sometimes when my kids were growing up and they would say something particularly snarky, I would hit pause for a moment and say, would you ever say that to 
your teacher right. or to a stranger? Yeah. Probably not. <laughs> the good news is <laughs> when ADHD kids are horrible at home, but good at school, home's the safest place for them. Yeah. And they can be their ugly selves and they have to go to school and hold it together. And so it's a small consolation I give to parents like, well, the good news is you create a safe home. <laughs> Bad news is it sucks to be you. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. So in these times, I'm sure, you know, everyone's struggling, but I think it just adds a whole new wrinkle to things for those that do have ADHD and those that are trying to support them to the best of their ability. Yes. If someone suspects that maybe someone in their home has ADHD, what do you recommend as a next step? Oh, Erin, I love that question. Um, if you don't mind, if I could use this metaphor, um, because may, maybe this helps answer this. Um, the first step is not to say, hey, I think you have ADHD. Let's get you tested. And the reason I say that is metaphorically, people with ADHD are born missing half a leg and we're born into a two-legged world. And we, we know there's something not quite right about us. And people comment, wow, you can't run as fast as other people, or you can't do this just like other people. And so we, we walk with this invisible handicap, and it's scary because we're just doing the best we can. And so a lot of times I start by um, suggesting, like one of the dads who was diagnosed, um, who really fought diagnosis, he's an engineer. Do you know how smart you have to be? to be an engineer with ADHD, undiagnosed, untreated. And so I started um, helping him with the concept of, you know, you're exploring this. If you did have ADHD, here's what it would mean. It means that you're a freaking hero for getting this far in life. It means that you have walked with this limp and not understood what it meant. And maybe you don't have this limp. Maybe you do. We don't know. But if you do, it means that you're a freaking hero. In other words, I'm addressing the shame part to go, it only means you're, you're incredible. So how, what are some of the benefits to getting a diagnosis and getting treatment? Is life easier on the other side? Hex, yeah. Some people are relieved to get the diagnosis, but a lot of people kind of have the, wow, what does this mean now? Um, and meta going back to that metaphor, medication is often like a, getting a prosthetic leg. Um, it's never as good as having two full legs, but wow, can you move a lot better? But every night you have to take the prosthetic off, which means I go into a non-productive time in my day because I don't have um, enough dopamine in my brain to keep it regulated. And so when that wears off, my brain chemicals change. And so a lot of times being properly diagnosed and medicated, and by the way, just a quick thing, women tend to go under diagnosed and to be diagnosed with anxiety. Um, Interesting. Yes. Misdiagnosed uh, with anxiety. Pardon? M misdiagnosed. Uh, yes. Um, Anxiety oh. could be a result of having ADHD. Exactly. Uh, so um, all ADHD people have some sort of relationship with anxiety. Some will just kind of, you know, stuff it way down. Some use anxiety for motivation. All ADHD people have some kind of anxiety component in there. 
but it tends to be in women that psychologists, specifically psychiatrists, will go, oh, you have anxiety. Let's address that. So back to your question, um, you know, if you wanted to help your child get help, would you go to your physician? Would you go to a therapist, your school counselor? Where, where would, I, I guess, a parent start the process if they suspected? Sorry about that. Uh, I would start with your family physician uh, first and see how, um, you know, a lot of times they'll do screening. They'll do a reference. Um, ADHD, I'm just really going to be honest. We're not terribly good at diagnosing ADHD, in my opinion. Um, it's almost like we have to diagnose it out of our peripheral vision. Um if we were to diagnose type two diabetes, we could run tests. These te- the test for ADHD is really um, a lot of self reporting, third party reporting, like a teacher reporting, um, parents reporting. There are tests for uh, to test how long we can focus, but all these are just subcomponents of testing. So it is very difficult to get a very accurate diagnosis. But and that's why I say start with a family physician, let them kind of screen it, and they'll know in your area who's the best um, for you to work with. And then ideally, there are people, you're in Ada, Michigan, but ideally, then there are folks like you around the country that are coaches that can provide that added support that, you know, once the diagnosis happen, diagnosis happens, that's great and all, but now what do we do? In fact, um, I'm the president of ADHD Coaching Organization. And if you go to our website, you can find a whole list of people just like me who want to help you figure out how to manage your ADHD more effectively. Be sure to put a link to that at the bottom of the podcast. Definitely. I will. I like the idea of coaching versus therapy. Kathy's coach is, her husband is a life coach and I have a coach and um, I just like that kind of perspective versus I think you it know. can be a little less intimidating for folks. Um, okay, yep. so Tamara, at the end of our um, podcast during quarantine, we've been doing these quarantine rapid fire questions. You know, I don't want you to think too much about it. I okay, I will. I could. I was kind of gauging this. I'm like, I wonder if Tamara will be up for this kind of thing. But I can tell, just given our conversation, that you're going to be down with with these questions. Well, I actually think it's fun. Um, by the way, ADHD brains are like, is it fun? I'll do it. So okay. <laughs> it sounds fun. All right. So question number one, besides your family, who would you most want to be quarantined with? Okay. My dogs. Your dog. I mean, my dogs are part of my family, but I'm, I'm a crazy for canines kind of person. Okay, good. And uh, ideally they're there with you. Yes, yeah. they are. But good. yeah. Um, are you binge watching anything on TV? Oh my gosh. Any British murder mystery I've watched, it's Ooh, it's too bad. Yes. Name some specifics. Oh, it's embarrassing because nope. they're they're shows that eighty year old people watch. I watch like, <laughs> Blind. Don't be you. I watch. I watched Love Is Blind. Aaron Tiger <laughs> King. Like, come on, you can't be embarrassed. So uh, Agatha Raisin, we just finished that, and it's a goofy little murder mystery kind of thing. Oh gosh. We did just watch um Downfell Water. Um we watched that one with David Tennant, but um 
Yeah, pretty much. If they're Broken World Mysteries, we watched all of those. And my 18-year-old has been a good sport watching them with us. So good. Um, What is your guilty pleasure? Okay. When I go, um, Lake Michigan is 45 minutes from me. And we have beautiful beaches. And I print off all these um, research studies. And I am the happiest when I'm reading research studies under an umbrella at the beach. Are your beaches open? Are you allowed to go? Uh, we have two problems right now in Michigan. The water is too high, and so we're losing a ton of beach. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's too bad. We have beautiful beaches. There's too much shoreline to really close down the shoreline. Wink, wink. So, yes. Okay, good. You're practicing social distancing. Ideally, you're by oh, your reading those. I am. I mean, no one wants to be with me when I'm reading research. Like, I, that's the nerdiest, stupid thing, right? We all need a little alone time. Let's be real. <laughs> um, what have you learned about yourself or your family through this um, quarantine? Oh, I love that question. Uh, you know, this quarantine has really caused me to kind of reflect, like, what do I want my life to really be? And something that I do... Um, I'm very task oriented and I like to make lists and just get stuff done. But before quarantine, I was working 14 hour days and I love what I do. And now that I was forced to slow down, I'm also forced to go. I, this is a healthier way of life. I wasn't taking time to just take care of me. And so it's really made me question, how do I regain a balance and hold on to a balance? And that you just answered my final question, which was exactly that, because I think we're all, you know, looking at how, how times have changed for us in this last nine, 10 weeks, which has been pretty dramatic. And, you know, it's easy to focus on the things that have been inconvenient, annoying, disruptive, all those things. But what, what about all those good elements that, you know, maybe we can hold on to Right. Not yeah. go right back out into that hamster wheel of life and like slow it, slow it down. Make I've been teaching. Yeah. I, I mean, one last thing I, I've been teaching my clients to stop and reorient like you would reorient yourself to a map and then recalibrate. So I've been practicing that myself. Like, Oh, I, I lost my place on the map a second. Where am I on the map? Here's where I want to be. And so how do I have to get back to where I want to be? I love that. Um, in closing, is there anything else you would like to share with us? Uh, no, I want to thank you for this time, though. I really appreciate your willingness to talk about the emotional side of ADHD. Um, people like to joke about it, like, oh, squirrel, or Tamara, you must have, you have ADHD, you can't focus. Well, focusing isn't really the, my biggest problem. Right. Um, emotional regulation knowing what to do, how to do it, when to do it. Those are my problems. In fact, I have too much focus. I, it's, why, it's how I can work for 14 hours a day. I, it's a thrilling thing to do. Right. And I think that, you know, it's, a, it's good to remind folks that, you know, people who we talked about at the beginning, people who have ADHD does not mean that they are less than in terms of intellect. Many of those folks, their brains are probably hardwired to work faster and harder than any of us. And, and therefore, you know, keeping it all together is the challenge. So 
I appreciate yeah. your willingness to come share your vast knowledge. And again, at the end of the, you know, if you log on to our podcast, which we hope many people will, um, there'll be a spot at the bottom where you can, that will link it to more information on how to get help or to get support. Great. Thank you. I really appreciate that. No problem. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Thanks, Kathy. Thank you for joining another episode of Alkaline Unplugged. As a reminder, please leave us a review on Apple iTunes or wherever you're listening. Comments, feedback, and requests or suggestions for future guests can be emailed to info at alkalinestudios.com. We look forward to hearing from you.